The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals participating in the show. All persons described or mentioned in the podcast should be considered innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. This podcast contains subject matters such as violence and graphic descriptions along with adult language, which may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. On May 25th, 2004, in Aurora, Colorado, a man leaves work to meet his new tenant at his recently rented basement apartment. Days later, when they search for the man, they discover him in his basement apartment, and he's the victim of one of the most gruesome murders you'll ever hear. You're listening to the Mysterious Bruce Podcast, and tonight we bring you the case of Oki Al-Kite. cold-blooded killer poses as a renter. Police say he had no intention of ever living in the home. He killed the homeowner, not for the money. They believe he did it for the thrill. It's been 15 years since Al Kite was tortured and brutally murdered. And tonight, Liz Gillardi shows us how new technology is bringing new hope to this case. He was just selected by this killer. Targeted and then tortured. His hands were elaborately tied to his ankles. Welcome to a deep, dark, dank, moist basement somewhere in the bowels of Georgia. Well, I don't know about up there where you're at there, Coach, but down here where you used to live, the wind decided to blow like the Seminole wind for two straight days. I couldn't walk to my car in the parking lot without getting at least a metric crap ton of debris in my eyes. Yeah, it was pretty bad up here. And we actually went on a field trip during it. We took all my kiddos to the zoo. Oh dear God. It was pretty (laughs) awesome. All their parents came too. Oh, well that's even better. Yeah. I didn't have to. You didn't have to hurt cats. Yeah, I got to actually, it was basically just a free day at the zoo for me. I bet those kids, I remember taking my son when he was about that age, and man, they are so, it's like just everything is just a, a wonder to them. I know, it's pretty awesome sometimes. Yeah, it is. We, um, we've been testing since last Thursday, and it has kicked Ugh. my tail. Ugh. So, yeah. With a side of, Ugh. Yeah. Well, I only got tomorrow, man, and then I'm doing it's on the downhill slide after tomorrow. Starting Monday are finals and then it's post planet. No doubt, man. We got sixteen we got fifteen and a half days of school left. Sweet. And then fortunately the county that I work in still takes old school too. Yeah. Hey old school. <laughs> I don't go back to school till after Labor Day, which typically is like a day or two away from my birthday. So that kind of sucks. But I live it up in the summer. I was going to say, you get an extra month off. So, yeah, I calculated yeah. mine. Mine's now six weeks. I get roughly Ugh. six weeks, which is better than most people don't think I'm crying about it. But it's just, it's just barely long enough for me to get over my PTSD. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. <laughs> But anyway, so I saw where we had a new five-star. I believe you sent it to me. I did. 
Let me go back and see if I can find it because I I took like 90 pictures at the zoo, so I'm not fumbling through it. I did find it. Oh, wait, I don't have the, hold on, son of a gun. I don't have the name. Well, while you're looking for it, we have a new patron. May the 1st, Heather Leffler. Welcome, Heather. Welcome. What tier? She's at the hundred dollar tier. I wished sticker tier, sticker tier. Yeah, y'all need to y'all need to come up with some rich uncles that would join a patron page for a hundred dollars a month. If each of y'all would just come up with two, just two. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, go ahead with your five star, sir. All right, it's from a Cody Jack, nineteen ninety two. Five stars. Can relate to these guys being a Georgia boy myself. Good stuff to listen to on my daily long hauls. Plus sharing Instagram reels back and forth with them makes it even better. LOL. Cody, if if that if that's the same Cody Jack, he told me one time he had shared something on Instagram reels and he said, Man, you know all those reels that says, Would you go to this place with the second person in your at list? And he was like, Without a doubt. He said, Because y'all are number two. Nice. But anyway, yes. Thank you, Cody. Long time fan. First time five star dropper. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, we're not going to beat around the bush tonight, ladies and gentlemen. We got a doozy. Um, coach recommended this a couple of weeks ago, and we finally are getting around to it. I told him. I told you. He never, he never heard of it. I told no. him this one is up. Yeah. He, the perpetrator uh, of this crime is fucked up yeah it's it's he's got a lot of four dollar words that describe him so let's jump into it man we are talking about oakley i'm sorry oaky albert kite jr better known as al al was born on may 7th 1951 in nash county north carolina he was the youngest child of you guessed it oaky albert kite senior and oh, wow. Edith Davis Kite. Al also had an older sister named Barbara. The family would move to Weldon, North Carolina, in Halifax County early in Al's life. Now, Al's mom unexpectedly passed away when Al was just 18 years old in January of 1970. His father was a well-respected dog trainer in the area. And Al attended Weldon High School, and upon a graduation... He attended Atlantic Christian College. And if you Google that, it no longer exists. It is now known as Barton College. But it was located about an hour south of Weldon in a town called Wilson, North Carolina. While at college, he would receive his degree in business administration. And in 1976, Al would marry a high school classmate named Gail Kay. Gail had a daughter from a previous relationship named Julie, and even though Al and Gail never had any children of their own, Al always considered Julie to be his daughter and maintained a very close relationship with her. Friends and family always stated that Al was an extremely nice, easygoing, friendly person who they had never heard anyone speak ill of. They would go on to add that he was fairly outgoing and always willing to be helpful to others. Now, after college, Al would take a job with Stone and Webster Engineering Service as a timekeeper. And you may be thinking to yourself, what in the hell is a timekeeper? Well, (laughs) it has been replaced by a computer program now that runs analytics. But back in the 1970s, 
they actually employed people that were responsible for tracking the hours worked by employees within a company. They would ensure, these timekeepers would ensure that everyone was being paid fairly for the time they spent on the job, as well as making sure that employees were not working too many hours in a single day or a week. Now, you may not recognize the name Stone and Webster, but they actually constructed and managed national laboratories, including the facilities for none other than the Manhattan Project, where the first atomic bomb was created. Stone and Webster also built the nation's first nuclear plant plant after beating out 90 other companies with their proposal. Jeez. It, not they's, too bad. They's, they's pretty good. Now, Al's yeah. first job was at the Surrey nuclear plant, and he was said to have moved up on the accounting team and eventually worked as a project manager designing accounting systems for a number of Stone and Webster projects in nearly half a dozen locations. While working for yeah, Stone, he worked all over. Yeah. While working for Stone and Webster, he was, like I said, the manager of accounting procedures at none other than Lawrence Livermore National Laboratories, San Francisco International Airport, the Bay Area Rapid Transit in California, and the list goes on and on. He would also work overseas as a senior timekeeper on a project in Algeria. Now, in 1998, Al would take a new position with Stone and Webster in Colorado, just outside of Denver in the town of Aurora. And there he would purchase a two-story townhome on 2002 South Helena Street between Cherry Creek State Park and Buckley Air Force Base located near Ice Interstate 225. <laughs> I interstate (laughs) (laughs) in 2000 lee scott hall an engineer at lawrence livermore national laboratory who had discovered a flaw in an important calculation on a billion dollar project was beaten and stabbed to death while he was home alone from numerous reports of the time detectives felt that the officials at lawrence livermore were not helping them and were stalling the investigation According to a report in the San Francisco Gate, Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory was, at the time, facing, quote, an investigation into concealment of cost overruns and delays at Livermore, end quote, including directly from the Secretary of Energy at the time, Mr. Bill Richardson. This calculation error was first discovered in 1998, which is the same year that Al was offered a transfer to Aurora. Now, concealment of cost overruns are the kind of thing an accountant might know something about. Yeah, kind of sounds like he would. I mean, you'd think, right? Yeah, you would think that Al may have seen something that raised his eyebrows. Now, just two years later, Stone and Webster would collapse in 2000 after a major bribery scandal coupled with the tech market crash. The company had attempted to pay $147 million to a relative of an Indonesian president, Suharto, to secure the largest contract in Stone Webster's history. Shortly after, they would file for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. 
because of cash flow problems. Imagine that. <laughs> that is the damnedest thing I've ever heard in my life. I know. If you just drop $147 million, your cash flow is probably going to be affected. Now, the company was purchased at auction by none other than the Shaw Group for $150 million. I think they got a steal. Yes, sounds like it. Unfortunately, at this time of the Shaw Group taking over Stone and Webster, Al was let go or laid off, depending on what you read. And this was in 2002 when they, he was no longer employed by Shaw Group. Now, while all of this was going on, Al and Gail's marriage, unfortunately, could not take the strain of his traveling and the upheaval in the company. And in 1988, they would ultimately divorce. Now, according to friends and family, the marriage would end amicably because Al remained close with his stepdaughter, Julie. Right as he's losing his job at Stone and Webster in 2002, he was able to land another job as a consultant with a firm called Carter Douglas. Now, being single, Al was living quite the comfortable bachelor life. As a result of the tech crash, however, coupled with his new job and some upheaval, he decided that he needed some extra money and decided to rent out the lower half of his townhome to supplement his income. In early 2004, Al would meet a woman named Linda Angelopoulos at a meeting for work. Now, there is a Oxygen Network show that I think it lasted one season. It was the DNA of Murder with Paul Holes. I watched a few clips on YouTube. It was pretty good. Yeah, that, I loved that show, and he was very – and if nobody knows who Paul Holes is, he was in the medical office, chief medical office in California, and he worked hand-in-hand -hand on reverse – not reverse engineering, but reverse genealogical mapping that caught the Golden State Killer. He's nice. a very, very smart man. But anyway, smart or not, very smart. In an I'll tell you all of that to tell you about Linda. Linda stated in an interview with Paul that they had seen each other at work several times and they were very friendly with, with each other. She said that I was always smiling and things like that. And that at one of the company parties, picnics, something, they wound up being sat together at the same table and hit it off immediately. And what began as a casual relationship would grow more serious over time. And it was around the same time that he's his relationship with Linda is getting more serious that Al's longtime renter let him knew knew let him know that I'm telling you, man, I am exhausted. <laughs> let him knew. Let him knew. Would let him know that they were not going to be able to renew the lease. The renters would move out in May of two thousand four and Al would begin looking for a new roommate around that time he put an advertisement for a new renter and depending on which source you read you find a couple of different stories some of them say that his advertisement was only put in the university of colorado's medical library which i think those reports are getting that skewed with something else that we will get to in a minute but the uh, most of the sources that you see and find say that he did advertise in the local newspaper i mean you're going to do it just in medicals that no, yeah, you're gonna it, doesn't, need to, no. 
yeah. local newspaper. And he sure. didn't have any ties to the medical library. Why is why I think that was kind of a misquote. And and you'll see why here soon. Now, one man would respond to Al's advertisement for a roommate on May 19th of 2004. Robert Cooper was his name. And as Al told Linda about his new potential renter, Robert would tell Al that he had just moved to Aurora from the East Coast. More specifically, I believe it was from the New Jersey area. He would continue that he was currently living with his sister and had taken a job at Wells Fargo. Now, Linda had never formally met Robert, even though they were actually in Al's house together for a very brief moment. While Robert was signing some of the rental forms with Al, Linda showed up and immediately had to use the restroom. And Al was like, I want you to meet my new renter. And she was like, I've got to go to the bathroom first. And so she states that before she came out, according to Al, Robert had found an excuse to leave. And as she was coming out of the restroom, she would catch a side profile of Robert. And she would state that he was very well-dressed in a very nice pair of pants and, and a suit coat. And based on a later conversation with Al, she says that they kind of, she came to the realization that he was, that Robert was in his late thirties, early forties. She said that he appeared to be around five foot eight to five foot 10 inches tall, approximately 180 pounds with curly black hair. She said his most distinctive characteristic was that he walked with a limp and had to use a cane to stabilize himself. Nonetheless, Al was eager to get his room rented out, and the pair quickly agreed on a security deposit, which in, entitled basically a half a month's rent along with a $250 upfront security yeah, deposit. I, I believe it was totaled $750. Yes. Now, Robert was looking to move in ASAP, is what he told Al, and him and Al agreed on a move-in date of three and a half weeks from the time that he signed this agreement and gave him the deposit. So on Saturday, May 22nd of 2004, Al would drive Linda to the airport where she was to board a plane for Virginia. Now, hold on now. Hold on. You're skipping a step. Robert actually came to the apartment again at some point when she wasn't there. Not exactly sure what transpired. I just know that he visited the apartment three times. Ooh, I the second not. time him and Al were alone. Now, I, the, reason, the reason why I know that is because it's a mystery why he didn't do what he did the second time. Why did he wait till the third time? Okay, so this makes sense on what I have read that he did show up a second time is because and I'll get to it. There is a, a little thing with a um, recliner. And so that makes that actually puts that in a little bit clearer well, context. Well, the recliner is the third time. Right. But yeah. they had theorized that sometime in between when she saw him and the recliner the third time is when the two had struck up a conversation about how he wasn't using it and that kind of thing. Yeah. So the two had decided, uh, let me back up. So as Al and Linda are driving to the airport, they decided to be official. And this just tells you 
um, their age and how they were taking it slow. But basically, as he's dropping her off at the airport, they officially become boyfriend and girlfriend. They are officially dating and just solely with each other. And when she talks about it, she still lights up. And um, yeah. And when she yeah, when she calls him from her first stop, she mentions that you know I mean they're just being silly. They like each other, you know. They're just because they're old, don't mean they can't be silly, right? You know. He said that they were like, he was like, "Hi, girlfriend." She's "Hi, boyfriend." You know, they're happy. Yeah, and she states in the interview that she didn't think after her first divorce that she would ever find true love again, and she said that he was just like her prayers had been been answered. He was a great cook. He was always in a good mood always smiling and she was extremely, extremely happy. Um, and like coach said, she had kind of surprised him with a call at a layover. And then she would call him back. She tells, she tells him that she's going to call him back anyway at when she touches down in Virginia beach and around three thirty that day, she landed and called Al again. Now again, three thirty Colorado time, right? Which would have been five thirty, Yes. Eastern Virginia beach time. Now, depending on what you read again, some reports say that Al seemed to be in a good mood when she called the second time, but most say that he seemed distracted. Now, Linda would tell Paul Holes on the Oxygen Network interview that the second call, Al was very quiet, which was completely out of character for him, especially when speaking to his new official girlfriend, She just thought it was odd because they were so, like you stated, they were acting silly and goofy and, you know, lovey-dovey. And then all of a sudden he's kind of quiet, you know, direct to the point. And she seems to believe that it was at this time that Robert Cooper had come back to Al's home. Yeah, it seems like he's trying to warn her without warning her. Right. You know, because Robert Cooper don't know him from Adam, so that he might think that that's his normal business, like all all business type tone, you know. Right. And we've discussed this on a previous episode. Like if I ever call coach and I say, hey, the coach, I need you to come by. That's the the big ding, ding, ding. Something's not right. (laughs) So. Yeah, I guarantee you. Without saying a word, without saying it at all, you and I could both figure out something's really fucking wrong. Yeah. Well, there was in an inst- sidebar, and anybody that listens to this that knows my true identity, we almost had a conversation like in the town between um, Ben Affleck and Jeremy Renner, and this would have been last week. Uh, I mean, it, yeah. it, it was close. Like, look, we're going to do some things. You can, We can never talk about it again. And we're just, I love that. We're just, yeah. yeah. He never, like, he's watching TV nonchalantly. He's like, need your help. I'm never, (laughs) I can't tell you what it is. We're never going to talk about it. We're going to have some people. people. And then he just nonchalantly goes, whose car we going to (laughs) take? Yeah. It would have been one of those things where we would both have had an alibi, but it would have been worth it. But I decided, you know, I don't look good in orange. And even though I had an ultimate plan, You know, things work out for the best. (laughs) Now, like Coach said, Linda's call came in at 3.30 Denver time, and that was 5.30 Virginia Beach time, and that would be the last time anyone would speak to Al. 
on Monday, May 24th, Al did not show up for work. And this was extremely out of character because Al was always punctual and a very reliable employee. His boss got in contact with Al's sister, who was residing on the East Coast, and she in turn called the Aurora Police Department and requested that they perform a wheelchair. wheelchair. Telling you, man, it's killing me. (laughs) A welfare check on Al. Now, this next little bit, Coach and I had kind of discussed this off air. It seems like between the first call from Linda and the second call from Linda, Al had gone next door and asked a neighbor to help him repair a basement pipe. And this is before Robert would have arrived. Now, it is rumored that Al was expecting to assist Robert in moving a large recliner. He claimed that he was not using, and Robert had made reference that he wanted it. He would use it if he could get it moved to the basement. And Al's offering to help because, remember, according to Linda, Robert walks with a limp and with a cane. So it that goes even leads more credits to that second visit. And that's where the the discussion of, hey, I'm not using this recliner. And he's like, okay, if you can get it moved down, I'll use it, da-da-da-da-da. Now, I say all that because what's if you think about that, the rest of this story is going to become one more oddity on top of the other. But the first oddity is if the neighbor is over there helping him move a, or help him replace a pipe, and his renter walks with a limp and a cane, you would assume that Al would be like, hey, man, since you're over here helping with this pot, do you think you can help me move this recliner downstairs? Well, I mean, we don't know that it could have been the first mention of the recliner was once the renter got there. You don't, We don't know that. Right. This is all speculation. Yeah. If he knew he was going to have to move it, then, yeah, it would have made sense he asked his neighbor, but... You don't. You just don't know. No, there's a lot of don't knows in this situation. It's yeah, a lot weird. There's a lot of weirdness. So over the course of the next hours or days or whatever, between Saturday and Sunday, Al was beaten, bound, tortured, and ultimately murdered. Now, it was, like I said, not until he didn't show up to work on Monday that the welfare check is issued by the Aurora Police Department. And it's believed that not only, well, I think I'm I'm jumping the shark, so let's back up for a second. All right, so what we know is, and there's, you can probably find it on YouTube, the Aurora Police Department do a video walkthrough, and... They do, they blur out certain things, but when they do the welfare check, they find Al's body in the basement area where Robert should have rented. Now, they come to a theory much later, but basically, in a cursory search and investigating the murder, they find that Al's truck was not in the driveway. His truck would be found a few blocks from his home that same Monday, the 24th. His phone and his wallet were left in a part of Denver in the days following his murder, which would further confuse the investigation. Yeah, he's going to leave the phone in an area that's populated by a lot of homeless with the hopes that they would find it 
and use it, which they did. Yes. Which definitely confused investigators. Now, sometime between Saturday and Sunday, like I said, it is believed that Robert Cooper stayed in the house and either continued to torture and beat Al, or this may have even been after Al was murdered, but he stays in the house. He showers, sleeps in Al's bed, wears some of Al's clothing, and apparently they know... Go ahead. I was going to say, apparently they know all of this because the bedding and several clothing items were not at the scene of the crime. Yeah, and it's very reminiscent of the set of guy of family murders in Tokyo that we've covered. Yes. Where the guy just stayed, hung out, lived there, ate the food, did everything he could. Now, Al's ATM card would be used at a drive-up ATM by a man driving Al's truck. They did not have a security camera. It just took security steals, I think, what, every second and a half or every so two seconds. Like it was it was an odd timing. But anyway, they see Al's truck pull up, head to the ATM, and at the ATM, there is a man wearing a ski mask and gloves. The ski mask only reveals basically about a fourth of his face, which I kind of, it's more of a... I call it the old ninja hood, but it's just that big slit across the eyes. You can see the eyebrows, the bridge of the nose, and in their high cheekbones. The guy yeah. takes we'll, his. We'll post. We'll post that picture. Yes, the guy takes his time, knowing damn well they're not going to be able to find any discerning marks about him. He withdraws a thousand dollars at the ATM, which which autom- which automatically makes the police think the motivation wasn't robbery because he, he gave him $750 a few days previous. So, right. so he's only keeping, I mean, he's only in the clear 250 bucks. Yeah, you're going to make $250 profit and you're going to torture a man to death. Don't and, make any sense. And it doesn't make any sense that he had access to the ATM card and he only withdrew a thousand dollars because he could have just started jumping ATMs and getting the maximum at each ATM. Yes. So there were daily limits at that time. And I don't know. I, it's, it's just hard to wrap your head around that. He would have, like you said, that the initial theory was robbery. But when we get into the crime scene, what he does to Al, you would not do just to get someone's ATM pin. I can guarantee no. you I would give you my ATM pin way before. Yes. Now, while robbery was not the motive, he did subscribe to your way of thinking of, well, might as well take some money while I'm here. Yeah, but not as much as I would have. Right. I took it all. <laughs> now, most murderers do not pay their victims for access to them. Like coaches said, Keep in mind that he has given Al seven hundred anywhere from five hundred to seven hundred and fifty dollars, depending on what you read, to basically as a placeholder to rent this bottom area of the townhome. And as Coach said, there was a previous meeting where it was just Al and Robert, where this he if he was going to rob or torture murder, he could have done it then. So another oddity pops up there now 
Robert would not have needed to conduct the level of torture he did, like I said, just simply to get Al's ATM pin number. Police documented, like I had said previously in their official video walkthrough, that Robert had plugged the drain in one of the side in one side of the sink, and in the sink were anywhere between six and twelve kitchen knives from a uh, butcher block, the honing rod, as well as a number of household items, including a drinking glass, a pen, a dishwasher scrub, a dishwashing scrubber, and Al's car keys, along with the key that he had given Robert as his renter's key. What is I guess darker is it is very evident as the investigators approach the sink that it's not just water. It is heavy, heavy bleach water. Yeah. He's, he's methodical. We'll we'll get it more into his, his, the way he planned this out later, but yeah, he knows that the bleach water is not going to, is going to erase any DNA evidence from him He's showing levels of planning that are just downright scary. Now, when it's almost like he's haunting the police. That's what that's the way I felt. And there's another there's a couple of more instances where I feel like he's taunting them, you know, very narcissistic behavior. Um, But when officers discover Al's body, he is lying face down, partially under a mattress in the basement or in the yeah, I guess the best way to say it, it's the basement of that townhome. But there is blood splatter high on the wall. And I think the walls, if I remember correctly, were not. I think they were your typical eight-foot ceiling. So, I mean, there it's damn near touching the ceiling on one of the blood splatters. And then there's blood splatter across the, I'd say, halfway up the wall. And Detective Sobeski from the Aurora Police Department would later describe the crime scene as, quote, the worst I'd ever seen, end quote. Now, the coroner noted a wound on the back of Al's head, which indicated that he had been hit from behind. Detective Sebesky theorized that he that this had happened as Al's walking down the stairs, I guess showing Robert where he would be living. Hey guys, Arlo here, and if you are struggling with the old caffeine in the morning, I have got the fix for you. It is called Magic Mind, and it is just a little two-ounce shot that you drink with your coffee or your energy drinks in the morning. It is chocked full of greatness, and it will get you focused, and it really actually has the L-theanine. And that lowers your cortisol hormone, which helps absorb that caffeine that you're intaking. Now, Magic Mind has nootropics, adaptogens, matcha green tea, and 12 magical ingredients. That matcha boosts your energy. The adaptogens help with relaxation, and the nootropics keep you focused. A bonus is that it has vitamins C and D along with the echinacea to help your immunity. So head over to magicmind.co backslash brews and enter the promo code brews 20 that is brews 20 brews 20 and that will give you a 20% off coupon for either a one-time purchase or subscription to a monthly dose of 
magic mind. Now, the fatal injury seemed to have been one of the 22 stab wounds the coroner would note. He would note also that Al was killed the same day he spoke with Linda, which would have been the evening of Saturday, May 22nd. Now, after Al had been killed, Robert, and like Coach had alluded to, he takes a shower in the master bathroom, eats food out of the kitchen, uh, wipes down the entire townhome for fingerprints, puts the bleach water in the drain with all the knives, the honing rod, and I'm making a big deal out of that honing rod because we're going to get to it in a minute. And then after he takes Al's GMC pickup truck to the ATM, that's when he drops his cell phone off in near some homeless camps. And when authorities do find Al's blue and gray GMC pickup truck, they find some ATM receipts in the front seat. And like I stated earlier, that it was only parked basically about a block and a half away from the townhome. Now, as they continued to search the vehicle, there was also a team going through Al's home. And while looking through the garbage can in Al's kitchen, they would find a discarded rental application. And this is where authorities first learn Robert Cooper's name because it had been handwritten on a rental agreement. Now, getting back to the the recliner. The ruse with the recliner is odd, and it may just be odd to me, but when you see the crime scene photos, and yes, they're out there if you want to see them, and uncensored, but also the walkthrough video, all you see in the basement is just that twin bed mattress on a metal frame, and that's where they find Al partially under. The basement did have a family room in addition to this small bedroom, but there was no recliner in the family room. So it seems that Robert Cooper had determined to make a, quote, appointment with Al for this murder and not simply wait for a time when he and Al would be home alone together. So it was almost like he that second visit was maybe a trial run of how long he could stay without neighbors or if he heard barking or if he had someone come over, that kind of thing. And then the third day when he takes Linda to the airport, it's like Robert has basically canvassed the whole thing and knows for a fact that he will not be interrupted. Yeah, it's almost the perfect place to do what he did. No right. one's going to hear him. No, and there, the town hall. No one's going to look for him. No, not especially not on a Saturday. Yeah, he's got time. Now, a beginning theory was that when Linda called that second time, that Al started having a bad feeling from Robert. He had either tried calling one of Robert Cooper's references and figured out that things weren't adding up to what he thought they should be adding up to. But you would think... And, and I, I say this, and then I'm going to contradict myself, but you would think if that was the case, he would try to excuse himself outside for some privacy on the phone and tell Linda, hey, this motherfucker is crazy. Get Call the police. I don't know if I'm going to make it. But on the same hand, that was not Al's personality. He was always outgoing, nice, looking for the good in people. So 
you know, it, it's again, it's pure speculation, and it was just a theory at the beginning of the Aurora Police Department's investigation. Now, another question was maybe at the time Linda had called, Robert had began to reveal to Al what he was really about to do and why he was really there. And some people on the interwebs theorized that this was to settle some score from Al's past that Al didn't know he had done. So authorities believe that the first time Robert met Al was approximately three weeks prior to Al's murder when he first, you know, viewed the apartment and Linda went to the bathroom. Now, he was alone or had reason to believe he would be alone with Al in the house on at least two occasions before he made his return with the ruse about the recliner. Now, everything about Robert Cooper turned out to be a fabrication. Once police start investigating it, they realized that the social security number that he had given Robert on the rental agreement was actually an 80-year-old woman's social security number and she was residing in Indiana at the time. They also traced, or once they tracked down that social security number, they interview that 80-year-old lady's son, and he said that he was not aware of any unauthorized use of his mother's security, social security number. And, And that's a big deal because a lot of times when those social security numbers are stolen, it's to open up god awful lines of credit. This guy's so calculated, he just needed a social security number. He didn't want it to embezzle money or set up a new identity or anything like that. He just needed a real social security number to put on an agreement. Again, the planning and the attention to detail is just eerie and scary. Well, it's a good, point, a good time to point out that he only used a burner phone. Right. He used a burner phone that he purchased from 7-Eleven, and they proved that he didn't activate that phone until 30 days after he purchased it. And he purchased it with cash. And you may be thinking, why is Coach bringing up 30? He didn't activate it for 30 days. Well, That man knew enough to know that after 30 days, the 7-Eleven recycles their security footage. So at a level of planning that is insane. At a bare minimum, he knew 30 days in advance that he was going to yeah. commit a murder. And he did not use that phone for any purpose other than calling random people that had rooms for rent. That is correct. And so that, that the fact that he was doing that shows to me that it was definitely random. Yes. It, or it, made to look extremely random. Correct. Which is a possibility, too. The address that he wrote on the rental agreement was actually the address of an elementary school in Denver. And the current telephone number that he wrote on the rental agreement was actually a retirement home in Aurora. And that was also a similar number, which went to the same retirement home, was the a phone number for reference. And like Coach said, he purchases this burner phone at a 7-Eleven. Well, that 7-Eleven, and I think this is where the skew comes for where Al posted his rental thing, that 7-Eleven is near the University of Colorado Hospital and the University of Colorado campus. Now, like Coach said, 
not only did he contact Al with that cell phone, he contacted other landlords in the area that had advertisements for either a basement for rent, um, a room for rent, whatever you could think of. One landlord in particular remembers showing her townhome to a man who gave her a, quote, odd feeling. She told Detective Sobieski that she remembers having this odd feeling when she showed this man part of her home, and as she was walking in to a room in front of him, she said she got this just awful cold feeling, and the hair on the back of her neck stood up. She said that she immediately rushed Robert through the other parts of the home and told him that she had several other people wanting to tour the home and she would be in touch and got him the hell out of there. Wow. Now, according to Detective Sobeski, this same landlord was able to give authorities a composite sketch, and we'll post that composite sketch as well that she showed her townhome to. What is more intriguing is that this lady taught linguistics at Denver University and told Detective Sobieski that she picked up a slight Romanian accent from this man, which is turns out to be Robert Cooper. She also tells the detective that the man just kept pacing around her house, checking out the windows, which made her even more uncomfortable. So with this witness stating her odd gut feeling, along with his odd behavior at checking the windows, it begs the question, why Al? Because most people that have already made up their mind, most murderers are not going to choose. This is going to sound so bad, but I'm just going to say it. it they're not going to choose a victim that they've, that the victim has a possibility of overpowering them. So between Al, who I think was between 5'8 and 5'10, a little bit, I would say, heavier than what people are saying Robert is, compared to a lady that taught school at the university, you would think, on face value, he would choose the weaker physical specimen. But that was not the case. Here's the thing, is he may have chosen Al because of the location, because of the apartment. Because of how he the 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 he probably saw that this place was perfect. There's one entrance. There's one exit. It's a basement. No one's going to hear him. No, there's many factors that could have made him choose out. Correct. And the fact that he's a fucking murdering lying piece of shit. That fucking limp's probably not real. No, that's what I was going to say. And the cane was probably a ruse yeah. as well. Yeah, the cane gave him a reason. Using a cane, A, made him look like he was weak and could not physically move the the recliner. So he needed Al's help that played on Al's, you know, kindness. And it also gave him a very good reason to have a blunt fucking weapon in his hand at all times. Correct. Damn right I'm correct. You're doing well, sir. Doing well. You are on your A game. You can tell when I actually know the subject. <laughs> now <laughs> you can tell when I, I actually know something about it other than like that day. 
Now, you may be asking yourself, self, why are we making such a big deal out of this slight Romanian accent? Well, the Romanian connection is of great importance as we get deeper in this case. During the police walkthrough, they find a bloody smudge on one of the lower risers of the basement stairs. And just to one side of that smudge, they find a single drop of blood. The drop of blood is tested, and the crime lab reports that it is from a single source male, unidentified, which means there was no hits in CODIS when they ran it, and it came back with a complete, full DNA profile. They just don't know who it belongs to. Yeah. And like I said previously, right, it's not ours, and it was not the previous renters. So the police are assuming this is Robert Cooper's blood. And this is where, again, that the DNA of murder with Paul Holes comes in because he's trying to use that same technique to basically reverse genealogical technique to find out who Robert Cooper really is. And we all know that's not his real name. I mean, that we're just going to go by, we're just using Robert Cooper because that's what's in everything you read. Now, the preliminary results show that the DNA is that of a male from the Balkans. And for those of you that didn't do too well in world history, the Balkans include Romania. Now, we get to the craziness. We're just now getting to the craziness? Well, it's even more crazy, I guess I should say. We had kind of glossed over the fact that he was found, tortured, and murdered. The bindings are a key in this as well as the Romanian connection, and it plays right into the Romanian connection. Al was hogtied, and not in your basic run-of-the-mill, ties wrist up, ties ankles up, and then cinch them together in the middle. No, this was one continuous piece of string or thin cord that was removed from the crime scene, and it was wrapped around the upper arms in a single crisscross and then right above Al's knees twice, then to his ankles, which then bound to his wrists. Most binding cases in the U.S. involve one of a number of rope types, either, you know, your hiking or your mountain climbing ropes, um, plastic zip ties, flex cuffs, or metal handcuffs. Most hog ties, like I said, are just a simple tie the ankles up, tie the wrist up, cinch them together. Now, Lindsay Philpot is a bindings expert, not a knot expert for our old OG listeners, but he's a <laughs> bindings expert. Expert, and he stated. I'll give you ten bucks. You tell me that. What I'll give you ten. I have no idea. I know I looked for it one time. It's around. <laughs> I want to say it was around. It's the one where the they thought that she tied herself up, but she wound up killing herself. Or, oh yeah, it was that one. I yeah, can't remember. Her I can't name. remember her name, but it was an early episode. Yeah, that was an yeah. unsolved mysteries case too. Yeah, the not expert. How the fuck you become a knot expert? Exactly. How's, how's that how's, how do you? Hey, I'm pretty good at these knots. How do you make a living? <laughs> and how many trials are you going to where they need a knot expert? Yeah. Okay, sir. Is that an overhand shipman's lap or is that a double <laughs> hangman's noose? <laughs> but anyway. I don't even know a single name of a knot other than loop, swoop, and pull. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Here, tie a double knot and see if you can pull it out. If you can, tie it again. <laughs> 
<laughs> we'll cut it if we have to. So anyway, back to the um, bindings expert. This Mr. Philpot said that what was even more puzzling to him was that the bindings were removed from the crime scene. This shows, again, a level of attention to detail and pre-planning. It was theorized that Robert used the kitchen honing rod from Al's knife set as a type of instrument to increase the leverage and tighten the knots. Think of it like a garrote, and they use that stick to get even more force. And he... Stick twisting, you can get it a lot tighter than you can with your bare hands. Correct. And you're not leaving DNA, even though he took the bindings from the scene. So correct. there's nothing, and this is gets real CSI, but if you're using that, that honing rod or a stick, you're not leaving skin cells that could have proliferated into the carpet onto his clothes. There's, it's just a metal honing rod. So, and if if you are sitting there wondering why even get them tighter, y'all, the knots were so tight that they, it almost looks like they cut into Al's elbows so bad that it like embedded in and created basically just raw spots on his elbows. Again, those crime scene photos, if you're into that, more power to you. I stopped where... I wanted to. Yeah. But basically what we're saying is he was using the knots themselves as part of the torture. Correct. They weren't just holding him in place. They were hurting him the entire time. Yes. And I'm kind of dragging my feet as to why we, these bindings come into play. And I promise we're going to get there. It's it's not, I don't want to jump the shark too soon because it kind of ties into what I'm going to go over next. There was a psychological profile of Robert and a lady of the, by the name Sharon Hagen, who was a retired prosecutor, now criminal profiler, stated that Robert used the bindings to fulfill some sort of ritualistic slash fantasy. She believes that Robert was a sadist that was able to delay the satisfaction he was seeking from the ultimate murder so that he could gain even more satisfaction from the actual torture aspect. Now, Ms. Hagen believes that Robert knew he was going to commit a murder when he began looking for a place to rent and just needed to find the perfect victim. Kind of like we have said, this man bought a burner phone and did not activate it for 30 days. So he knew well in advance that he was going to murder someone. Unfortunately, that someone turned out to be Alcott. Now, either the other landlords, like Coach had said, didn't either fit his type, their apartments were not as secluded there were more windows just number of things that could have just not checked the boxes in robert's mind they may have asked too many questions but when he saw that basement apartment like coach said he knew immediately he was going to give robert that security deposit and that was going to be basically his kill zone yeah that's all she wrote now Miss Hagen's profile of Robert centers around someone who is emotionally detached from society, possibly a loner, probably has not had any or if they have had any very few intimate relationships with other people, your typical narcissistic psychopath sadist with no compassion. Now, we get into the 
cultural profile of Robert. And this is where the torture comes back into play because it has a signature almost as gruesome as the bindings. The odd hog tie that he used was coupled with the beating of the soles of Al's feet, and that is known as falaka. And this is a very common form of punishment or torture that is found in Turkey. It is also known by the name bastinado in other places. It has a rich history as a torture method, not only in Turkey, but in the Soviet Union and the other occupied territories that the Soviet Union had, more specifically Czechoslovakia and Romania. Now, falaka is primarily used to extract information from someone as well as to keep them in compliance at, while they're bound. And falaka is performed using a wooden or metal rod that looks extremely similar to a metal honing rod that was found at the crime scene. The odd bindings and the hog tie is most commonly associated with the Turkish or Kurdish Hezbollah. And it is their signature technique because it places, that hogtie places the feet in an elevated position, locking the knees and the ankles so that the falaka can be performed very easily by the perpetrator. Extremely proficient means of torture. And yet another tie to the Hezbollah, especially the Turkish Hezbollah, is that they used specific non-fatal cuts and stabs to increase the pain and torture along with this falaka. Al was repeatedly stabbed over hours in unique places such as just above his eye socket and his eyebrow, into his ears, down into his shoulder blades, all non-fatal but excruciatingly painful. I didn't find the coroner's report, so I don't know what the fatal stab was, but he was ultimately, there was a fatal stab wound in those 22 stabs and cuts. Just, just tortured. Just horrible, horrible, a horrible way to die. Yes. And he, there's pictures of his feet out there and y'all, Oh God almighty. I just, mm -mm, mm -mm, no, I just, I'm just, the pain that I have from one broken bone in my toe is bad enough. I could not even imagine the pain from having the soles of your feet beaten. But anyway, you may be asking yourself, how does a Romanian native make his way to Turkey? Well, most Romanian men leave Romania for Turkey for either a industrial job or to attend a higher university, a higher education university. Both industry and those universities are huge recruitment areas for the Turkish Hezbollah. And the height of the Hezbollah in Turkey was in 2000. It was around this same time that the Turkish government began to take notice of how powerful the Hezbollah had become and began to crack down. Many high-ranking members of the Turkish Hezbollah were arrested and those that were not fled Turkey, allegedly for the U.S. And the time frame fits with Robert Cooper, he could have been trained in the torture techniques of the Turkish Hezbollah and the Falaka, and he could have been doing this over there for years, you know, because they 
Linda stated he was in his mid-30s to early 40s. I'd seen one article that said he could have been as old as his mid-50s. There's no telling how many years he had done this. There's no telling at what age he was taught this torture technique. And the psychological profile lady, Miss Hagen, says that she feels like knowing all of the cultural profiling leads you to believe that somewhere in him learning this torture technique or him performing this torture technique in his early years triggered a very dark area that it not only excited him, but ultimately made him enjoy this torture technique. And if he fled the Turkish mainland for the U.S., there was no work, in quotation marks, to speak of. And we now have a narcissistic, psychopathic sadist that could be a serial murderer, torturer on our hands. So through people that had seen glimpses of Robert, it is theorized that he was born after World War II, which would put him in that mid-40s, as late as, you know, late 50s range. His accent is described as Romanian and not Turkish, which leads you to being him being born in Romania. And he most likely left the Balkans after the 1989 revolution there, which is why DNA, DNA, that reverse DNA genealogical process, is pointing to him having come from that part of Europe. Now, somewhere, not only did he obtain an excellent education in English language, but Robert Cooper must have lived in the United States for some time and had plenty of occasion to practice his conversation with Native American English speakers to have a level of pronunciation proficiency where his accent was only detectable to that one linguist or linguist professor. There has to be people in the U.S. that know Robert Cooper. There has to be someone out there that, if shown a picture, is like that whole, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio where he's like, that's me. That's right. That's, yeah. hey, that's me. Yeah. It would be one of those, you know, epiphany moments. What you need to, if you are listening to our podcast, um, what we're talking about is a middle-aged man of which he would be pushing so mid to late sixties by now, but he would be late sixties, maybe early seven seventies, Eastern European descent with a possible connection to the East Coast, New Jersey was specified. Some connection to either, they theorized banking, um, the hospital or elder care, and someone out there knows this Robert Cooper. They just have not been shown the correct picture. They just have yeah. not, they've not been given that one puzzle piece that's like, oh, you know, so-and-so, said he was in Denver around that time. I wonder if, you know, that, that sketch looks a lot like him. And going back to the criminal profiler, Miss Hagen stated that she believes that Robert was a ritualistic killer and that unique hogtie would be his signature. But as far as we know, we don't have any more of these unique hogtie situations. 
Now, at the end of the DNA, the episode of DNA of Murder with Paul Holes, there is a message stating that the ancestral DNA results led Paul and authorities back to the Balkans, which we've already discussed, more specifically Romania, and that the investigation has found living relatives of our Robert Cooper there. Now, DNA can tell us who he may be, but it will probably never provide us with an answer of why did he target Al? As Detective Sobieski put it, he couldn't find anyone who could f- say a bad thing about Al, and he was repeatedly referred to as a true gentleman. Al didn't make enemies. Now that we know that there is DNA evidence out there for living relatives of Robert Cooper in the Balkan region, is there a Romanian connection to this crime that goes beyond just a displaced Hezbollah psychopath? Yeah. Now, the other thing is, and this is taking a little bit of a conspiratorial turn, but another big question is what happened to the linguistic professor? Because I could not find her name, and there's a whole thread out there just on her trying to figure out whatever happened to her, why she felt the hair on the back of her neck stand up. It does she still live in Denver? Did she eventually rent out this townhome she was talking about? Was there ever a time and a place where her background, Al's background, and our Robert Cooper's background all crossed paths? It could have been in the U.S. It could have been in Algeria. It could have been in the Middle East. He worked all over the world. Now, this is where we take a turn with, you got to get your tinfoil hat on a little bit. Al attended a Christian college, so he was likely a man of faith who loved his country, and therefore he would likely be the type of person who could be possibly recruited by the alphabet agencies. You know, they hone in on the greater good, and at the time he was in college, we are eyeballs deep in the Cold War. So he could have been a clandestine kind of intelligence work-ish thing. Even though he was an accountant, he could have made enemies he didn't know he made. Now, the actions that Robert Cooper took from start to finish in order to commit this crime need a lot of investigation because every bit of this case is so odd. If you attempt to connect Al's case to others, you come up short in just about all areas. And according to authorities, there were and still are no other crimes that even remotely compare to... Al's case that remain unsolved. If this man were merely a sadist, you would expect that he would have some other victims out there that have some similar ties. And the first thing they go to online is, do you have an Israel Keys type serial killer out there that's not been caught? And if you're not familiar with Israel Keys, you can look him up. He traveled long. Well, I was going to suggest him as my possible explanation because if you watch, if you look at the still from the ATM, it looks like Israel Keys. Right, I had seen that theory too, and it, it does. Yeah, but the age ages don't match up at all. But maybe the people that say he looked older, maybe were Israel Keys was not wearing disguise. He wore disguises. 
Right, and what I was going to say to throw the cops off his trail. He traveled from the East Coast to Alaska and from Alaska to the Midwest to commit his murders, and he planned his murders out years in advance. He had kill buckets, and he was very successful at not leaving behind fingerprints or DNA. Now, supposedly, in some circles, they have ruled him out through DNA analysis from that single's blood dropping. But you don't know because this case file for the Aurora Police Department is 8,100 pages thick. We've barely scratched the surface of what they know. Now, if you get back into this is just some random sadist that enjoys binding people and he gets a sexual release from the bindings and ultimate murder, these people can't control themselves and usually spiral out of control. Even. BTK could not stop his compulsion and would take at least one victim a year. He called his compulsion factor X. So it kind of throws out this. It's such an odd case because once you like pigeonhole something, you're like, well, hell they've nobody's ever come forward and said they were bound up in this weird way. They've never had their feet beaten, you know, that kind of stuff. And so the sadist angle would lead you to, He's got more victims out there. Now, he could be employed by people that deal in things that come across the southern border that we don't speak about. We we do not utter their name, but you can put in, you can fill in the blank on your own. It is possible. I guess it's a possible, but it's it's just so out of my realm of thinking. It just takes so much self-control to be able to pick out a victim Spend weeks allowing yourself to become knowledgeable of not only their home, their patterns, to go as far as buying a burner phone and knowing that 30 days later, the security cameras would erase your purchase. I mean, it's the level of pre-planning attention to detail I cannot emphasize enough is just crazy. And what makes it even more crazy and goes back to maybe taunting the police is when Robert disposed of Al's truck, he only left it a block and a half away. He could have drove the damn thing halfway across the country if he wanted to. He could have put it in an airport lot. He could have, like we said before, taken all of Al's money that he could possibly get from the ATMs around Aurora, but he also could have taken Al's body and disposed of it, and Al would just be a missing person. That goes back into this whole sadist kind of thumbing his nose, narcissistic, not sadist, but narcissistic person thumbing his nose at authorities because, again, he didn't have to necessarily put the knives in, a, in the sink with bleach water. I mean, you're ta- you took the sheets, the bindings, and most everything else that would have tied you to the crime scene. You could have easily taken the knives with you. So again, man, this is just crazy, crazy. And it it's hard to imagine that this is just a stranger on stranger crime. No, this definitely seems like it's way more motivated, but I don't know, man. It just, it, and the balls on this guy. He showed his I face. Think he just really, just truly wanted to kill someone, and I, I think it was random. I think 
once he saw the basement, he knew that Al was the guy. Right. But what's weird is he shows his face, and, and I say the balls on this guy, because he shows his face to not only Al, but another potential landlord. And, but he's, he doesn't want Linda to see his face and, and comes up with an excuse to leave when she shows up. The confidence level on him is just crazy. And another theory out there is that he could have traveled to Denver just to commit this crime. And like I said, is recognizable by people that he probably associates with on a day-to-day basis. But since there's not been that big rush of media coverage, this case is kind of under the radar. Yeah. He had to stay somewhere in and around Aurora or Denver during this whole planning stage, which we know was a minimum of 30 days. But he would also make calls from different places. He wouldn't call the landlords he was calling from the same general area. He'd like drive to the other side of Denver and make these calls to make it even harder for them to try to trace his movements. And we tie it back into he was on the university campus in that medical library because that's where he found the lady that taught linguistics, her ad for her rental property. Because I think that's the where she's the only one that posted her rental property on a bulletin board at that specific location. Yeah. I just, I don't know, man. Everybody that the police have invest that have the police have interviewed state that there's a little bit more. They describe him just a little bit different from everybody else. Like somebody keyed in on, like Linda's said that he, um, had dark curly hair, and then someone would say he had a limp. And then you go back to Linda, she's like, he's got a limp and a cane. And then there's other people that they interviewed that said, no, he walked perfect. And, you know, he didn't have long hair. He had short hair. It's just, it's odd. Now, another theory out there is that Al's murder matches the case of Mike Emirate, And it was later determined that, Mike was killed by a former Seattle police officer who was believed to have been operating as a paid assassin. Robert Cooper's age range is described, like I said, depending on who you look at, mid-30s, early 40s, maybe late 40s. This reinforces that same age group as this Seattle policeman, but upon DNA evidence, Emirates case hit the guy that killed him. The DNA is not a match. So I don't know, man. It is just, it's so fucking weird. It is. And, and didn't you go back into that? If Al was tied into the alphabet agencies, was this a specific target of Al and Robert used that burner phone to call other landlords to throw off the fact that he did single in on Al. Yeah, that's what I was saying. It was he either it was completely random or it was purposely made to seem random. And if you try to back the timeline up, you come to about the beginning of March for Al to have become I guess the I guess for Robert to have really zeroed in on Al. So you're looking beginning of March for him to get his patterns down. 
you throw in there towards the end of March is when he buys the cell phone, those kind of things. Um, and people have asked, you know, was the previous Renner interview to see if he recalled if he had re- discussed, you know, hey, I'm moving, this place is going to come up for rent, and a Robert Cooper type was in the area. The other thing is, with the Romanian accent, did he stalk the language professor and watch her and, like you said, just got lucky enough that he finds this perfect basement apartment and that, you know, Al just checked all the boxes, like I said previously. So, I mean, it's just, like I said, you can go down. This is one of those cases you can come up with a theory and you get about 90% there, and then you you discover something, and you're like, well, that shit's the bed on that whole theory. And you just keep yeah. chasing the rabbit. Yeah, absolutely. But that is the case of Oki Alcott Jr. So we're going to post the composite sketches on there. We're going to post the stills from the ATM. There is a website that I found that has the uh, snapshot DNA profiles and they have like a computer generated sketch, I guess is what would be best described. It's just a computer generated face. Um, They have potential eye color, potential hair color, potential of freckles, those kind of things. Um, We'll also post pictures of the sink that's filled with bleach water. And then of course, we are going to post pictures of Al and you can just see in some of these pictures, these, you know, candid shots that family has shared. He just looks like a, a great guy, man. Just, he's he always, really does. He's look, he's always smiling. There's, there was pictures in that episode of the DNA of murder that, um, he was cooking a couple of times and every time he was there, he was just grinning from ear to ear. So, I mean, you know, it just, it, again, just, a shitty situation that I just, it just made, if, if this really was random and it was a stranger on stranger, then that's even more terrifying. Yeah. Cause it could, you know, it could have been any of us. Yeah. I mean, you d- just happened to have a basement where the window was one of those kinds that was probably like four or five feet below grade. And you, if you tried to scream, nobody would hear you. So, yeah. But anyway, so we've kind of beat around the bush about our theories. Um, Coach likes Israel Keys type. Um, it just if you know who Israel Keys is and what he did and how he did it, and then you look at his face compared to the face in the ATM photo, I think it looks very similar. Yes, I agree. And if you go the Israel Keys route, he did. He didn't have curly, curly black hair, but he had curly enough black hair. Um, I mean, it's just as good a theory as any, because like I said, I can talk myself into just about any of them. You really can. This was a doozy, um, just a head scratcher. And, and the, the way he was tied up is so specific to that Hezbollah torture method. That's when you kind of shift gears back to no, he was, Al was the intended target the whole time, you know, because, uh, supposedly there's not been any other murders in which those types of bindings and that level of torture has occurred. 
But anyway, all right, Coach, you got any recommendations? I'm going to recommend the YouTube channel Blame It on Jorge. It's really good, really good YouTube channel. And his his video, The Disturbing Calculated Murder of Oki Al-Kite. Yes, if this 25 minutes long, and it's very good. If this case has led you to find more on either the Turkish Hezbollah or um, unusual torture methods and things like that, there are several podcasts out there. Um, I highly recommend, and my recommendation is going to be the um, Oxygen Network, the Paul Holes Investigates. Um, the murder, it's called Killer Roommate on the DNA of murder with Paul Holes on the Oxygen Network. And I think you can find those. It's odd how you find their back episodes. I think it's like NBC Universal owns them now. So I don't know. Yeah. You got Discovery Plus, you probably have it. Yeah, Discovery Plus. I know if you have an Amazon account and you really, really want to watch it, it is a good episode. It's about 45 minutes long. And he goes over yeah, a lot of good. Buy it on, you can buy it on YouTube as well. Yeah. So if you're Not willing sure to spend the two ninety nine, three ninety nine on it, it's out there to watch. So, well, Coach, you got anything else? You know I don't. Uh, deuces. <laughs> <laughs>